passage of scripture. Let's turn our hearts and our minds toward him. Colossians chapter 3. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we just thank you so much that what we just read is true, that our, our life is hidden with you. Lord, we just want to stop this morning and recognize you for who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we, we come here this morning, we have nothing to offer except what you have given us. Paul said in Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive and why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? Lord, everything that we have good comes from you. Lord, our desire to worship you even comes from you and it's crazy that you would even want our affection, that you would even care about where the affections of our hearts are this morning. But Lord, we pray that they would be turned towards you and not on things of this world. Lord, we just thank you so much that it's true that we have been, in a very real sense, we have been crucified with you, we have been buried with you, and praise God, we've been raised with you, that we are alive because you
many of you grew up in a home where you were forced to at least try everything on your plate? I grew up in that kind of home, and I remember my first encounter with spinach. That was my last encounter with spinach. I was thinking about, for some reason, uh, a plate. And on that plate is everything we enjoy eating except for one thing. And I thought, well, that's kind of how this whole subject of judgment is, right? <laughs> we like the love, we like the mercy. We like the forgiveness. That judgment piece kind of sits over there on, on the side of that plate and really don't like eating that because it's, it's difficult because at some point in time as you're eating on that plate, right, you, you can't just have the fried chicken, right? Although fried chicken's great. You can't just have all that fried chicken and the mashed potatoes with the wonderful gravy, right, and the biscuits. There's that spinach over to the side and you have to eat it. And you have to eat it because God says you have to eat it. At the end of the day, the subject of judgment has to do with God. It's about His righteousness, and it's about His justice. And so, while we may not like eating it, we need to. Because I really believe it's going to help us live lives that can be pleasing to the Lord. So I want you to take your Bibles and go with me. Second Peter chapter 2, and if you're visiting with us today, we're thrilled you're here. We're going through the book of Second Peter, and we're at chapter 2, and our section for today is verses 6 through 10, the first part. So let's read that together. We'll have a word of prayer, all right? And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and remember, we talked about if last week, that it's not if, but it's since, and you can see there, it's in italics, so it's actually not even in the original. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if and since... He rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And verse 18 is a parenthetical verse. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the, un rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh, which the thought process there is lust in its corruption, excuse me, its corrupt desires and despise authority. Let's pray uh, together. Lord, we just want to commit this morning to you. We pray that we would have a better understanding in this context of, of what you're saying as it relates to judgment. Judgment of the false teachers that is yet future. But Lord, um, also um, understanding these examples that while judgment certainly does take place, uh, it will take place. 
And Lord, um, I pray that you would help us as we uh, dive into the scripture, that we might better understand the example today as we look at the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the midst of that example of judgment, there's this wonderful rescue because of your grace. And so we just commit our time to you in the precious name of Christ. Amen. One of the most colorful figures in American history was Robert G. Ingersoll. He was an agnostic who gave dramatic lectures throughout the nation about his doubts concerning the existence of God. One night when he was addressing an audience in a small town in New York, he proclaimed eloquently his doubts about a future judgment and hell. When he finished, an old drunk stood up in the rear of the hall and with thick tongue said, I sure hope you're right, Brother Bob. I'm counting on that. You wonder how many people are sitting in audiences around the world counting on the fact that they're not going to give an account to anyone. That, that life's just about living for self and getting what you can, but there is no judgment in the future. But is that what the Bible says? It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there will be judgment. In this article written on judgment, the author goes on to say, modern man does not like to think of God in terms of wrath, anger, and judgment. He likes to make God according to his own ideas and give God the characteristics he wants him to possess. Man tries to remake God to conform to his own wishful thinking so that he can make himself comfortable in his sins. In other words, one's behavior and the way he acts is inconsequential. It has no consequence. And we live in a culture like that where man says, live like you want to live. And in these examples that we looked at, whether um, it was the, the angels or whether it was um, the ancient world, or as we look at this morning, behavior seems to be inconsequential, but the reality is that one's behavior does matter. It matters how one behaves. Um, the author goes on to write, this modern God has the attributes of love, mercy, and forgiveness, but is without justice. Man doesn't want to be judged and punished for sin. He reconstructs God along the lines of tolerance, all-embracing love and universal goodwill. And that is the gospel that's being proclaimed today. That there is no consequence. That everyone eventually is going to end up in heaven. And Peter declares in this passage that these false teachers who were teaching, right, what was not true, would be judged. They weren't getting away with what they were doing. And Peter wants to reinforce that idea with these guys and say, look, they're not getting away with it. They're teaching what is false, but one day judgment is coming. In fact, we saw last week from verse 3 that judgment's already been determined. It's already been determined. It's not like they can change that. None of us can change what's coming with the Lord. Did you know that? Right? Every single person that's in this room will stand before the Lord. Every single person. Not because I say so, but because the Word of God says so. And so last week we saw that judgment 
has already been determined for these false teachers. And then Peter cites three examples about judgment. And um, he gives us the first one. He said that the angels were judged, verse 4. And then he talks about the ancient world being judged in verse 5. And then we get to verse 6, and he talks about this third example. third example is Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned numerous times in the Bible? When, you, when one thinks of Sodom and Gomorrah, what comes to one's mind? Sin, right? Sin. It was a place of sin. In fact, um, Scripture tells us it was not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was the surrounding cities, as we're going to see in the book of Jude. Well, what does Peter tell us about Sodom and Gomorrah? There are two things that we learn that I believe are really important. First of all, he's telling his audience that God condemned the cities. Notice verse 6. And he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you go to Jude... Verse 7, it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. So it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah, it was the cities around them. God condemned these cities. That word condemned indicates a completed action in the past. So Peter's referring to something that's already taken place. I really like this because what it does is that Peter's not only arguing for the fact that this judgment's already taken place, but he's arguing for the fact that Scripture's true. Remember? Back in chapter 1, we have what? The more sure prophetic word of God. We have God's word that tells us what has taken place. And so God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It did take place. And secondly, we learn from Peter's account that God's judgment served as an example to the ungodly. Now, if you look at verse 6, uh, it, it reads pretty interesting in the original language. Look down in your Bibles. It says, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. Now, that last phrase in the original language reads this. As an example of any about to be living ungodly. Uh. So... Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example to any, right, of any about to be living in an ungodly manner. So Sodom and Gomorrah serve for us as an example that God does judge wickedness. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and he judges wickedness even today in our culture. He judges wickedness. If you go back to the book of Corinthians, you find the fact that God judges wickedness. Um, Paul, that's quite a book because the Corinthian church was not an exemplary church. They had a lot of issues. And they had a lot, a lot of issues in regard to sexual immorality, as we're going to see here from Second Peter, which was a problem even in Sodom and Gomorrah. The word example there uh, indicates a warning. It was a warning to those that wickedness will be judged by God. Do you believe that? You believe God judges wickedness? He has done it, he will do it, and he will continue to do it. All right? Um, so as you look at 2 Peter, that's what we have about Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you turn to the sister book over to Jude, Jude reveals further about Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what it says, what Jude says about Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them 
since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, there's quite a bit there, okay, that we need to discuss. Notice, first of all, that phrase, since they, in the same way as these. Who are the these that he's referring to? Well, if you go back up to verse 6, he's referring to the angels. Notice what it says, verse 6 of Jude. By the way, if, if you're turning to Jude, it just one chapter, a little postcard, all right? Verse 6 says, And angels who did not keep their proper domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of the great, excuse me, for the judgment of the great day. Now notice, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these. Who are these? These are the angels. Okay, the modifier there. These go back to verse Number six, these are the angels. All right, the Bible says here, in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality. Now, remember last week we talked about the two views, right? We said in, in uh, uh, regards to the angels, either these angels that sinned or were the angels that fell with Lucifer, or the angels that sinned were actually the sons of God mentioned in Genesis chapter six, and those are the two primary views. Well, if you hold to the second view, this is a pretty good argument for that, right? Because he's referring to the angel's sin here. In context of Jude verse 7, he's saying their sin was what? What does it say? Gross immorality, right? So where do you find an example of that? Well, for those who hold to the second view, they go back to uh, Genesis chapter 6. But not only that, there's a greater argument than that in terms of this immorality. It says in verse 7, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. That word strange is the word in Jude verse 7. The word strange there is the word heteros in the Greek. Heteros. And it means this, flesh of a different kind. <laughs> All right, so if you hold to the second view, then you have a pretty strong argument as it relates to this word strange, right? As these indulged in gross immorality in which that went after strange flesh, flesh of a different kind. So that would take you back to Genesis chapter 6. And we know from Genesis 19 that the men of Sodom went after strange flesh, did they not? Oh my goodness, they did. You say, well, how committed were they to going after this strange flesh? Well, I'm glad you asked. Go back to Genesis chapter 19. I want to show you how committed these guys in Sodom were. That's right. These guys in Sodom were really committed to going after this flesh of a different kind. In Genesis 19. Look in verse 1. It says, Now the two angels came to Sodom, in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, and when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, however, No, but we shall spend the night in the square. 
Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, did what? They surrounded the house. The Bible says both young and old. When I read that, I was like, that really saddened me. I got to thinking about it. Well, that makes sense. If the older are, the younger are. Does that make sense to you? Makes sense to me, right? I'm just a basic thinker. I go, well, the older were committed to this, and so are the younger. Now listen to me, parents and grandparents. We have a responsibility to set forth a good example for our children and our grandchildren. And I read this, and I'm like, this is, a, this is a sad account. That this place was so wicked, that the wickedness went this deep, that the Bible says both young and old, all the people from every quarter, now notice what they did, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Sin abounded in Sodom and Gomorrah, giving strong argument here that this was gross immorality, just as Jude describes it. Um, that term, gross immorality, means to give oneself over to extreme sexual sin. We live in a culture today that has given itself over to extreme sexual sin, true or false? I can't hear you. True. In fact, I, I've made this statement before, but I think it's okay. You've probably forgotten it. So I can say it again. It seems to me that even in Christian culture today, there is this tendency to divide one's life. This is what I mean by that. I have a job, and I have the things that I enjoy doing, my hobbies, right? And I have these people that I hang out with, and oh, oh, oh I, I go to church. That's a segment of my life. And then I have this thing called, right, morality. And that's up to me. I write the rules in that. I determine what I do. I determine my own actions. And man, listen to me, Satan has got a foothold in our young people today like I've never seen before in my lifetime. You know, there was gross immorality going on when I was growing up, right? That's true. These guys in Sodom, right? They're, they're, it's this homosexual issue, right? And, and homosexuality existed when I was growing up. Uh, you remember the term, the phrase was used, it, they are in the closet. You remember that? No longer in the closet, right? It's right out there. And this is the mind, listen, this is what's being taught. We do not have a right to judge that. Okay, God does. 
God's already judged that. Just like God has already judged adultery, right? And any type of sexual sin. God has already judged that. He has already said that is against his will. What, what tends to happen is we say, well, this is the greater one. And this, listen, sexual sin is sexual sin, right? And that's what we need to remember. And in Sodom, it was homosexuality, right? But there's fornication that goes on all over the place. Have you read the book of Genesis? It's there. Man, if you've never read the book of Genesis, if you're looking for sexual sin, there's a whole bunch of it going on in Genesis. In fact, to a relatively new believer, I think they read, read through that and go, wow, this is wild, right? But don't miss this. God has a standard, and he has set forth that standard. Who has rejected that standard? Man has. Man's rejected that standard. Um, there's an article written by Billy Graham entitled The Justice of God. He wrote it back in 2010. Um, and he cites this example I thought was really good. Uh, more than 900 clergymen and students gathered at Harvard Divinity School to ponder the so-called new morality and its significance for the church. Now listen to this. One professor of divinity said that premarital sex between engaged couples was all right that God would understand. Well, that's what's being taught out there, right? And so you have young people wondering, hey, well, what does God say? What does God say? Right? Young people, listen to me. You need to save yourself for your spouse, for your husband, or for your wife. Right? I remember being in a... I, used, I think I told this story not too long ago to a group of people, but I'll tell it again because you all weren't there. Um, they were doing this, um, I guess, kind of a testing in New York State. I was at the school, and they were testing... Um, they were wanting to test um, the knowledge of students as it related to the issue of sex. And so they were going to ask them certain questions, and this forum was going to be directed to junior high and senior high. And local pastors from the area could be involved, and so I went, and I wanted to kind of, you know, see what they were going to be discussing, and oh my goodness. And they were going to be talking to junior high and senior high kids, right, how to have, quote-unquote, safe sex. And so um, I sat in there and I listened and I listened and I listened for about an hour until I couldn't listen anymore. And I said to the lady who was leading the meeting, is safe sex the best answer you can give to these young people? Because what you're saying today is that you want to keep these young people safe that includes all these kids in this community. So you're teaching them how to have safe sex. But is it really safe? Is it really the best answer that you can give to them? 
I said, do you know that the best answer, and I, I believe that these kids, and there, there were kids in there, I believe these kids want to hear the best answer. And I looked at the kids and I said, kids, do you want to hear the best answer? And they were shaking their head like that. I said, the best answer is abstinence. That's the best answer. The best answer is to save yourself for your spouse. Now that sounds old-fashioned today, doesn't it? Why? Because everybody is involved in sex. But that's not true. That's not true. There are young people that have saved themselves. And young people, if you're one of those, please keep doing that. That's God's will. That's what God wants. That's God's best for you. I could speak on this for another 30 minutes. Because listen, it's so powerfully important. Let me just give you one other thought on this that is really important, and that is that parents stay in touch with your young people. Know who they're hanging out with. Know what they're watching. Know what they're looking at. Well, that's one example. He says, a professor at another theological school thought that no sexual relationship should be absolutely condemned by the church. Thus, many church leaders continue to reconstruct God according to the secular and humanistic trends of our times. That is a wonderful statement, because that is so true. Listen to it again. Thus, many church leaders continue to reconstruct God. My friends, listen to me. God is God, right? Man doesn't say, this is who God is. Scripture tells us who God is. I really don't care what 100 people think about God. I care what God says about God. And I get that from his word. And so, as he goes on to write, man tries to remake God to conform to his own wishful thinking. Oh, God really doesn't care about this area of my life. How important really is that? So that he can make himself comfortable in his sins. Thinking, you know, as I was thinking through this and reading through this article, I'm like, well, I wonder how comfortable the church is today in terms of sexual sin. Have we crossed the line to where we're not even willing to stand in front of a congregation today and say that immorality is against God? Well, in Sodom... There was definitely gross immorality being attempted and going on in this city. Well, what does the Bible say about sexual sin, about this issue of judgment in regard to sexual sin? Um, there's a couple of verses I want to give you here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. In 1 Corinthians 10, the first part of it is, is wonderful. Paul gives example of, of, the, of Israel. And he tells us the things that they did. It's kind of like a warning um, of what took place, right? It says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, as some of the Israelites did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, when it says fell, that doesn't mean they just fell down, right? They were dead. They were judged. Then you have in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, let marriage be held in high honor among all 
And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He will do it. That's what the Bible says. So let marriage be held in high honor. Yes, I'm for that. You for that? Mm. You for that? Yeah. Listen. Young people, listen to me. It's a good thing. Our young people today need to see marriages that are held together by God. They need that example. And they need to know, listen, marriage isn't perfect. Right? Just ask Teresa. She'll tell you. Listen, marriage, listen, it's like this. Right? If we're going to hold marriage high among all, then we have to have the mind that God has concerning marriage. And then he says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. That's a strong statement. There are tons of marriages today that are hurting because of sexual immorality. He says, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Notice that word will. That's future tense. Not will and might, but will. It's a certainty that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You say, how in the world then do I deal with this, right? Because listen, we're not just talking about the pagan out there who has no mind in terms of what God says, who's just living for the moment, however they want to live. How in the world do we as believers have victory in this area of immorality? Well, I love this quote. I don't know who to get you credit to, but I think he's right on, or she is right on. There are many strategies used to fight off sexual sin. However, the most significant one is to learn to delight in God above all else. I like that. Because you know what? Ultimately, we have been created as children of God to enjoy who the most? The Lord, right? To enjoy His presence, to enjoy intimacy with Him. Um, but let me just make one more comment. I've got to back up and wait. One more comment before I leave this marriage part. Do you know how you keep from the sexual sin in marriage? Satisfy one another. <laughs> Wow, Thad, you said that from the pulpit. Yep. Why? Because God says it. 1 Corinthians 7, right? You're not to withhold from your spouse. You're to enjoy one another, right? I, it's like I had a professor in college say that God created sex for procreation and recreation, right? That's why he created it. And so, so, the, so the husband and wife are to enjoy one another. That's the way God designed it to be. Why have we let culture define it? God's already defined it. All right. Well, let's move on to the third point in this passage. So we have the condition of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was place of gross immorality but right in the middle of all this 
we see this rescue. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 2. We see this rescue take place. Verse 7, if he rescued righteous, and if he rescued righteous lot, meaning since, and since he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Now if you go back to Genesis and you're looking for righteous when it comes to Lot, you're not going to find it. In fact, we would look at this and go, what, Lot? Lot? God rescued Lot? God rescued you. God rescued me, right? <laughs> Thank the Lord. So you look at, first of all, in Second Peter, the nature of the rescue. That word rescue is a really important word, all right? In the original, it means to bring someone out of danger. The root of the word, now listen to this, because this is actually confirms what took place in Genesis. The root of the word emphasizes dragging someone along the ground. Do you know the rest of the story as it relates to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, Right? Basically, he had to be drug out of the city. Notice Genesis 19 says this, but he, meaning Lot, hesitated. <laughs> so the men, the angels, seized his hand. He did what? He hesitated. Why? Listen to me. Sin's fun. It's fun. Right? That's why people indulge in it. It's fun. Right? But listen to me, that's a lie from hell. The greatest intimacy you and I can have is with the Lord. The Bible says, but he hesitated, so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife, and we know what happened to her, pillar of salt, and the hands of the daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon who? Him. And they brought him out, and they put him outside the city. You know, when I read that, I thought about, I did think of, somebody asked me earlier about this, but I did think about the rapture for a second. So how many believers are going to be going kicking and screaming? Man, I love this world. I'm so tied to this world. Right? I, I think that's an appropriate thought. You know, here, here God, in his grace, rescued Lot. God, in his grace, rescued us in terms of salvation, but he's going to rescue us, is he not? We believe in the rapture. He's taken us out of this world, this sin-infested world. Um, well, we see here the nature of the rescue, right? He hesitated, but the Lord, the Lord had compassion on Lot. In fact, three times in this particular chapter in 2 Peter 2, he refers to Lot as what? As a righteous man. Three times. So you have the nature of the rescue, and then you have the need to be rescued. The need to be rescued. Notice in verse 8. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul 
tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. You back up to the end of verse 7. Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. He needed to be rescued from these people. The word oppressed there in the, in the original means worn down or extremely tired. You ever been worn down or extremely tired, right? From working, maybe? Well, this idea here is that Lot was extremely tired or worn down because of the constant sexual sin that was going on in Sodom that surrounded him. There's an example of that word oppressed to kind of give you the, the gravity of that word here that he uses. Um, and this example is taken from Acts chapter 7. Right? And this refers to Moses. Alright? It says, When he saw one of them, one of his people, being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for who? For the oppressed. Who were the oppressed? Israelites. For the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And so, Moses was worn down from seeing that oppression in this context, in Second Peter, Lot was worn down. <laughs> Are you and I worn down? Are you worn down by this constant sin and wickedness that's all around us? It's everywhere. Well, that's, that's not the only evidence that he needed to be rescued. He uses another word here in verse uh, 7. Excuse me, verse 8. It's the word tormented. Notice this. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented. Day after day with their lawless deeds. The word tormented describes literal torture after being judged. But Peter uses it figuratively to describe the mental anguish. The mental anguish which Lot had as a result of his eyewitness account of wickedness, right? He heard it and he saw it. And he heard it and he saw it. And he heard it and he saw it. And if you look, right, on the television today, you look in newspaper articles today, it's all around us. Wickedness is pervasive even today in the United States of America. In this context, the Bible tells us that Lot was tormented there was a mental anguish he was grieving over, right? What was taking place there inside him. That happens to us. There's mental anguish that takes place. You ever had a rebellious child? You ever dealt with a rebellious child? There's mental anguish. Why? Because you love that child. You don't want to see that child stray. And so Peter here uses the term tormented, tormented. His righteous soul, tormented day after day after day with their evil deeds. Well, Revelation 20 uses that same word tormented, except it's in a different context. Revelation 20 is the future day of judgment. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Same word. Same word. The torment that Lot felt, same word used to describe what's coming in terms of judgment, future judgment for all those 
who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So as you come to the end of that section, you're like, how in the world does a believer survive until Christ comes? How does he survive? Well, if you look at the end of the section, we're told. Look at verse 9. It says, then the Lord knows how to do what? How to rescue the godly from temptation. Does he know how to do that? Absolutely he does. We'll close with this verse. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians 10. We're told that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And we get that, right? That judgment's coming. But what about this whole rescue thing? Because you and I are put in positions, right, at times where we need to be rescued in our daily lives. In the context of the passage, the Apostle Paul is wanting these guys to understand, right, from the past, learn from the past. And so he, he gives them some examples as to what happened to Israel. And we come to verse 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as what? Common to man. And God is what? And God is what? Faithful. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Well, let's acknowledge something. Temptation's there. True? Absolutely. You say, how often is it there? All the time. Satan doesn't take a break on Sunday. In fact, I think that's one of his most constructive days, to be honest with you. You look at this and you go, well, the temptation is there and it's always there. But notice what he says. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are what? Able. But with the temptation, so the acknowledgement there by Paul is there is temptation, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. So you read that verse and you go, oh man, thank you Lord, you are so faithful because temptation, I'm going down this road and there's temptation, there's temptation all around me all the time, but you are faithful. And you tell me you're going to deliver me from that temptation. That's what this book says. How does he deliver us? How does he do that? How does he deliver you and me from temptation? Hmm? Holy Spirit. His word. Who said that? His word. The spirit of God lives in us. And according to the Bible and the Gospel of John, he's going to lead us into what? All truth. But if he's going to lead us into all truth, where does that go to? The Word. So do you know that the way, right, is the Word? Jesus said he was what? The way. I am the way. The way, listen to me, the way out of temptation comes through relationship with Christ and the Word of God, period. That's it. I like what C.H. Spurgeon said. He said, a Bible 
that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Because you know what temptation can do? Listen to me. We can be drug off into sin. That can happen. But there's always that way of escape. And if we believe that the way of escape is the Lord and His Word, what does that mean? Practically, stay in the book. I don't know how to get out of this, Dad. Stay in the book. I don't know what the Lord wants me to do. Stay in the book. But I don't think I can hang out with this person because if I hang out with this person, then I'm going to make bad choices. Stay in the book and leave the person. Yeah, but I really like that person. Yeah, but that person may lead you off into areas you don't need to go. Stay in the book. Yeah, but that I'm not going to have any friends if I stay in the book. Yeah, you will. The Lord. Stay in the book. Stay in the book. I love that middle part. Let me make two comments. We'll be done. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. God is faithful. We probably could talk all day long about the faithfulness of God. But how many of you could illustrate the faithfulness of God in this area of temptation? The Lord was faithful. I won't go into details, but years ago, I mean, I was a young person. And um, there was a temptation that was right in front of me. Right there. And I'll never forget it. And there was a decision that I had to make. At that point in time, do you know I remember standing at a door talking to this girl and saying these words. It's all I knew. I didn't know what else to say. I was 16 years old. Now you're going to think this sounds silly coming out of my mouth. This is all I need to say. I said, look, I don't know who's going to be my wife. But I'm going to save myself from my wife. Now that sounds dorky coming from a 16-year-old. But that's what I knew. And you know how I knew that? Because I was taught that. You know how I knew that? Because people, men, my family invested in me to hold up God's word high. Listen to me. This is not just a book. This is God's word. And he's given it to us. Because listen to me. Think about this illustration of Joseph. Right? We all know that illustration. Potiphar's wife was probably gorgeous. And the Bible says that she came after him how often? Every day. How often is temptation knocking at your door? Every day. Every minute almost. Every day. 
I love Joseph's response to the Lord. He feared God. I look at that and I say, well, you know what? That's a really good response. Right? He feared the Lord. And that fear, listen to me, and we need this image in our minds. That fear caused him to run. Right? Here's Potiphar's, I'm running the other way. Here's Potiphar, she's chasing me this way. I'm running the other way. Right? Sin is knocking at the door. I'm running. I know with a group this size that all of us understand that that door, right? That, that door is being knocked on all the time. And you and I have to stay in the Word of God. We have to wear out the pages of this book in order to stay right before the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about positionally. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But I'm talking about our everyday life. Everyday life. I'm talking about the sanctification piece. Because every single day, believe it or not, Thad Blunt faces temptation. How about you? You in that same boat? I think you are. What did Peter want these guys to know? These false teachers weren't getting away with anything. And he uses some amazing examples to drive the point home that God knows how to rescue the godly. But God will judge those. He will judge those, right, who are speaking false words. These false teachers were doing that. Let's pray together. Lord, I, um, I know that all of us in this room face temptation daily. As I read this section of Second Peter, I see your amazing grace. And that amazing grace that saved me is the same amazing grace that every day I have access to. And God, I pray that you would help us, all of us in this room, Lord, help us to be committed to what you say. It's not like it's just yesterday that you said it. Lord, these words have been given to us by the prophets and the apostles so that we might hold up your word, so that we might stand firm in the things that you say. So, Lord, we acknowledge that temptation is constantly there. We also acknowledge your grace your ability to rescue us from the temptations in life. <laughs> Look at Lot and he's drug out of the city. I'm thinking, Lord, that's, sometimes that's the picture I have of, of myself. You're dragging me away by your grace. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand that sin is against you. 
And Lord, that we would understand your forgiveness and your grace. I wouldn't want anyone to walk out of here today thinking that forgiveness is not there. It's not available. It is absolutely available. And Lord, I just, I just pray that everyone in this room would know that. And Lord, I pray you would help us to live each day by grace. That grace wouldn't be a license to sin. Just like Paul said, may it never be. But, Lord, that we would recognize that standing in your grace allows us the freedom to move about your word so that we are guarded and protected from the enemy. Lord, help us to reflect this morning on what your word says. Help us not to leave this day without thinking about what your desire is for our lives. Thank you for listening to us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If we can just uh, continue in an attitude of prayer, if you just continue to bow your heads. I want us to ask God what, what David asked God in Psalm 139. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I just ask you to just pray that to the Lord as he brings things to mind, confess them, repent of them, lay them at the foot of the cross where they can be washed away by his blood as far as the east is from the west to be remembered.
Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh Lord, we cast down our idols. Give us clean hands. Give us pure close in one last song, just celebrate uh, God's grace for us, his amazing grace. In the day of Noah, uh, God provided an ark with light. He gave him angels. Uh, we have something far better. We have the blood of Christ to deliver us from our sins, to deliver us from death. Um, let's celebrate about that together. It's mine. 
pray together. Lord, we just want to thank you so much for your amazing grace. It is past finding out in many ways, and yet, Lord, you've extended that to us. And um, I just want to thank you, Lord, that you rescued me. Uh, I was walking down a dark trail, 
and uh, you rescued me. And I can't thank you enough for that. And in terms of my salvation, Lord, it's just so wonderful to know you. And then many, 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 many times in the process of living as a believer, you've rescued me. And I thank you for that as well. And Lord, I know in my life, uh, sin at times has easily entangled me. And I just want to thank you for forgiveness. I thank you, Lord, that you do forgive. And that your forgiveness, is, as Joe said, that you remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. You cast them into the depths of the sea to remember them no more. Truly, you are an amazing God. Help us, Lord, to uh, live this week to your glory as we anticipate your coming. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.